0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas.
1: I'm
0: going to keep it 100 with y'all. I am not in the best of moods. That's probably a bad way to start a podcast, but y'all have asked me to upload weekly. And with that weekly upload, sometimes comes my weekly moods. I will deliver to you the best episode that I can. But y'all, I'm tired. I'm tired. Everything that's going on, it's exhausting. I got my hair braided yesterday, so it's still pink. It's individuals down to my tush, and it's five shades of pink. It sounds a hood hot mess, but it's really, really cute. I bought five or six shades of pink, and I laid them out on the table, and I was like, my hair is a million different colors in a million different places. Just match the braid hair with whatever color you see on the hair as best you can. So yesterday, for 12 hours, we sat in my house, or I sat. She stood braiding my hair, and because I'm confined to the chair, I'm watching CNN I'm on my laptop. I'm going through the news, making notes about what I was going to talk about today. And like midway through, like I just was almost in tears, especially watching CNN. Yesterday, the U.S. had 50,000 new COVID cases. It's the highest single day ever of new cases. In response, governor of California shut down most of the city again. Like we're almost under complete shelter at home. Like my gym up the street never did open, but restaurants are closed. Bars are closed. Most places people can gather indoors are closed. Beaches are closed for the 4th of July. I, I watch the news and, and it feels like the early days of the pandemic where everyone is confused and doesn't know what to do. And there's like a an undercurrent of of fear and hysteria, and rightfully so. I mean, over 125,000 Americans are, are dead. More than 2 million Americans have tested positive for COVID. Like, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And then they put up these maps of of the states that are surging. It's over half the country. And I'm in one of them. Like many people, my life has been... Put on hold or delayed in so many ways. Like, I'm thankful that I still have checks rolling in. But I've sacrificed so much. Like, my film project that was about to go into production, on hold indefinitely. When do the studios open up? Like, who knows? I read earlier today that CAA, like the big um, talent agency, they're closing their offices until 2021. That's an indication of where the TV film and overall entertainment industry is with this whole thing. Like we're we're shut down indefinitely. And as one of the people who has been responsible, who wears their mask every time they leave the house, inhaling my own hot ass, not always pleasant breath, it sucks that I have to suffer because other people won't abide by the damn rules. With the exception of protesting and Juneteenth, I don't I haven't been in massive crowds of people. I haven't eaten in a restaurant in over four months. I haven't traveled. That was a regular part of my life. I can't. The EU just opened up July 1st and Americans ain't on the list. Rwanda is on the list. And that's no shame to Rwanda because clearly Rwanda did their part for COVID-19 and their numbers are down. But the United States can't get in. And a place like Rwanda, which is not a shithole country, but a place that our president would have called one. They open. They can get into the EU. America can't. We can't go to Canada. We can't go to Mexico. Sitting over here in California, I can't even go to New York without being quarantined. I mean, I don't know how they're enforcing it. But Cuomo is like, look, if you in one of them infected states, you're not coming here after we work so hard to get our numbers down. Stay where you at. Or if you're here, stay indoors and quarantine. It's CNN keeps showing this map. And, like, in purple, it's a little squiggly line that eventually heads down, and that's, like, the rest of the world. And then there's this, like, bright pink squiggly line that heads down, sort of, and then soars back up to the top. And that's the United States. Like, this country's a goddamn embarrassment. And in the middle of this, our leader, the occupant, I usually don't read my reviews. Like, if you... Believe the best of what people say. You also have if you believe the best of random opinions, you kind of also have to believe the worst. So if you judge yourself by the feedback, it's just a mind fuck. So I, I usually don't read them. I might check them every once in a while just to take the temperature of the room. But in general, I don't. But I saw this woman complaining. She was like, all she talks about is Trump and Obama. There are other topics. I was like, are there during a global pandemic in an election year? When the occupant is running amok, inciting race wars, and ignoring 100,000 deaths, are there really other topics? I talk about other topics for variety's sake and as a distraction. I assure you, politics right now, who's in charge during a global pandemic and how they move is the most important topic to discuss. That said... On the day that 50,000 people were diagnosed with a harmful disease that has killed 125,000 Americans, your boy hops on Twitter and is talking about the ratings of CNN and MSNBC. 30 some odd states going in the wrong direction, several of them surging, including the one that I live in. And your thought process is on TV ratings? Really? Really? I swear for God, if I was working a day job, if I was failing so massively at my job, and my boss saw I was on Twitter talking about TV ratings, and this is when I worked in entertainment, my ass would be fired. But this dude, president of the United States, global pandemic, nationwide protests still, police can't stop killing black people, and you tweeting about TV ratings. It's fucking deplorable. And when he's not tweeting about TV ratings, he wants to retweet videos of people yelling white power, which people were very outraged about that. And rightfully so. I couldn't get but so riled up about it because I'm like, yeah, this is in a long line of offenses. Like we knew he was a racist. We've known he's a bigot. We know he's a sexist. And then every time he does something racist, bigoted or sexist, people are like, oh, my God, he did. Yes, that's that's what he does. This ain't news at 11 anymore or it shouldn't be. He retweeted. Did you see that video? Everybody saw that video of the protesters in St. Louis. They were trying to get to who was it? Was it the mayor? It was a high up elected official. And they did a press conference where they gave out the names of citizens, regular citizens who supported defunding the police. So it's putting them in, in harm's way. People are pissed about that and so much more. And they go to protest at the elected official's house. The elected official lives in a gated community. Literally a little flimsy iron gate that's like the size of a door. This ain't no massive situation. The protesters in the video I saw are able to unlock the gate and they push through. When I saw they were pushing through, it was single file. Like one side of the gate was still closed. So they come through this gate. This white couple, their version of events, they're sitting outside. They see this quote-unquote angry mob. They go and get their guns. He's out there in literally a pink polo and, and this huge gun threatening people. They're pointing their guns at the protesters. This video goes viral. Other people who were present have uploaded videos from the event. The protesters are on the sidewalk, yes, in a gated community, but on the sidewalk or in the street. But they're not trying to approach these people's home and they're not approaching the people. Now, could there have been a different scenario before people broke out their guns? Sure. But as the protesters are going by, they're looking at these people like almost like, are you serious? Like they're not even sure the guns are real. They're just like, are are you serious right now? Because we're not headed to you. We're headed to the elected officials house. The protesters who came into the gate They weren't tearing up shit before they got to the gate. They weren't going crazy and burning and looting. It was broad daylight when all this happened. They really seemed to have no interest whatsoever in the St. Louis couple in their gaudy ass mansion. They weren't interested in these people's home. They had a mission to go to the elected officials house. Dude went on CNN and was like, I thought me and my family were in imminent danger. They were going to come and burn our house. And steal all of our possessions and kill our pets? Nigga, what? White people, I guess it's an ancestral fear they've passed down through the generations about mobs of black people coming to attack them. Some real Nat Turner shit. I always think about, like, when I hear white people in this irrational fear of, like, some sort of black uprising, this goes back to, like, slavery. But I always like to remind them that You feared an uprising because you stole a bunch of people, millions of them, from another continent and then enslaved them in yours, treated them like shit. And then you've got this fear like, oh, my God, the Negroes are coming. Black people, despite our reputation as being so violent and so fed up, are very, very peaceful. There should have been a Nat Turner uprising every fucking day, every day of slavery in every city that there wasn't is a testament to the good nature of black folk. I assure white people when black folks get together, our conversation is how to better. We want to make more money. We want to have less racism. We want to own our own shit. We want to divest from white folks. That, those are the things we talk about. Now, every once in a while, you get a fired up friend who's like, burn this motherfucker down to the ground. But those conversations don't really go that far. Maybe they should. It's kind of like, you know, a dude accuses you of cheating and you ain't cheating, but he just, he keeps accusing you of it. And you're like, well, fuck, if I'm gonna put up with this headache, I might as well cheat. Like white people keep thinking black folks are gonna have like this massive uprising. Maybe the fuck we should just so they can stop. Just go full Haitian. Just go wild. They wasn't no passive black folks. And they had machetes, which for the life of me, I will never understand. Obviously, I'm in support of the freedom of the Haitian people. Like, they gathered their machetes and they got free first. First black republic on this side of the world. I'm just saying, objectively, just looking at the situation from a historical context, who thought it was a good idea to give enslaved people machetes? Like, I know you needed it for sugarcane, but nobody thought maybe we should collect the machetes at night to keep the black people from, like, you know... Using them on us? No? Oh ah, well, you see how that turned out. People are really going crazy. Let me back up. People are really being documented going crazy. It's not like the videos made it more prevalent. Yesterday, I was sitting there scrolling. I saw a video of a black couple in Montclair. Their caring-ass neighbor had come over wanting to know if they had a permit to build a stone patio on their house and was harassing them. I was like, who the fuck are you to ask if they have a stone permit? These are things that would never cross my mind. Like I grew up in the suburbs. People do renovations to their homes all the time. I would never in a million years think to roll up on somebody's property and be like, hey, do you have a permit for that? Like, how does it affect your life? But ma'am rolled right up on their house. In the portion of the video that was recorded, she was accusing the woman's husband of attacking her, and was like didn't you see it didn't you see it to other people and they were like because there were other neighbors out and everybody else was like no that didn't happen stop it I saw another video this woman black woman was at a hotel pool with her children chilling it was some other people around an attendant from the hotel came into the pool area came straight up to her and was like are you staying here the woman was like "Are are you serious right now like, you see all these other people sitting around. And she was like, you people come to the pool um, when you're not supposed to be here all the time. You people? The woman produced her key card. She didn't have to. She was gracious in that she did that. But I was like, where do y'all get this, this territorial feeling? Like, y'all be doing the most for minimum wage. And y'all going above and beyond, wrong and strong with it, too. Putting your job at risk just to be racist. The woman recorded it. It went viral. The attendant who came up to her was fired. All that because you wanted to be racist. That little check you was making, which you needed. It's a global pandemic. You needed that little check. Now you ain't got it because you want to be racist to some black folks who were minding their business. I saw a video of a white woman pulling a gun in a parking lot. Two people in a parking lot. I want to say one was backing out. The white lady was backing out in her van. She almost hit the other woman's car. And then she pops out her van with a gun. Because she almost hit somebody else. This is all on video. White folks love guns. Love them. We have an expert this episode who's going to talk about gun use for black women. There's a story in the New York Times today about the uptick in interest for guns from black folk. The title of that New York Times piece, it's an opinion piece. I'm a black American. I need a gun to feel safe in this country. The subtitle is Some Black Americans Never Considered Buying a Gun Until Now. I, of course, did not know that story was coming when I interviewed my expert, but it's quite timely. I have a couple other topics that I want to speak about briefly. The BET Awards happened on Sunday. They were good. My Internet was down from like Friday until midday Monday. So I couldn't watch the BET Awards at home. I've been having some other issues with um with this apartment, but that one sort of pushed me over the edge. My friend Amanda Seals was hosting the BET Awards. So I called her and I was like, yo, where are you watching the awards at? And she was like, on my couch. And I was like, with, with who? And she was like, chilling. You know, it's a global pandemic. I'm Social distancing, so I was like, "Oh, well, I'm coming over." So I went and picked up a little cake for her to celebrate, and she had some prosecco. So I, I watched the awards with her. It was good. Like it opened with that um, what's that beautiful black child. I don't know his name, but he opens his mouth, and it's like an angel flies out. It's beautiful little voice. I saw him. I saw his video all over social media, which I guess is how he ended up essentially opening the BET Awards. And I was like, "Oh, look at you coming up, precious little boy, precious little face," and then. We do a Fight the Power update with Public Enemy, Nas, Rhapsody, some other folks that I was like, who is this? I don't I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. But that Fight the Power remix with Nas, I was like, are, are we dropping that as a single? Did that happen yet? I'd like to listen to that in my home, in my car, in my headphones. I was surprised PE was back together. There was a big fallout between Chuck D and Flavor Flav a few months ago over a Bernie rally. I thought after all these years, they'd gone their separate ways. But if ever there was a time for Public Enemy to come back together and drop an album, now. Now is the time. The midst of a Black Lives Matter movement, the second wave. Because the first one, people were angry and mad and was like, fuck Black Lives Matter. Now everyone's like, we stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. But that set the tone for, for the award show. That was the blackest, most fired up award show I've seen ever. That was just blackety black. I mean, every BET Awards show is blackety black, but it's not usually like fight the power political black. And I was like, I'm here for this political blackness. I'm here for like, give us our black ass rights. It was it was so good. Dare I say, I like this virtual award show more than I like live award shows. Like I like a good live performance and the audience interaction, watching it on TV. I've been to a few award shows. They're actually not that fun in person. The commercial breaks that folks got to take, it just kind of kills the momentum. It doesn't feel like being at a concert. It feels like being at a stage produced live event. Anyway, I didn't know half the people performing because I'm 40 plus and don't keep up with new artists, perhaps like I should. But I thought everyone did a great job. There was no one who I was like, why are you here? Jennifer Hudson. Singing Young, Gifted, and Black at the piano. My God. I love her voice. Some folks don't like her voice. They like sisters just screaming. I love how she screams then. I love Jennifer Hudson's voice. John Legend was good. John Legend's consistent. Alicia Keys, visually stunning. Meg The Stallion doing her um, Tina Turner Mad Max slash Tupac. What Tupac song did he do the Mad Max thing? It was probably... It was Tupac and Dre. Was it California Love? Yeah, I think it was. I ain't seen that video in years. Tupac's video was inspired by Mad Max as well. But Megan was good. That song? With that boys in the hood beat? That's gotta be a Dre beat, yes? They paid good money for that clearance. I guess he needs some now. I mean, not really. Dr. Dre's wife just filed for divorce. After 24 years of marriage, sir has something like $900 in the bank. I don't think he's a billionaire. They live in California, and there's no prenup. I mean, it probably wouldn't really matter after 24 years anyway. California is a very strict community property state. So after 10 years, your spouse is walking with half. I saw that story, and the first thing I said, because if you really want to find people who believe in marriage, talk to somebody who's divorced. Divorced people be like, Mm-mm, figure that shit out, figure it out. But I heard that story and I was like, look, bro, the woman wants peace. People leave their spouses, not because they want to leave their spouses, but because they want peace. Peace becomes the prominent focus in their life and they don't feel that they can find that in their relationship. That's why people get divorced. But whatever this woman been asking for you to do, do that shit. Are you about to lose half y'all's checks? And I say y'all because they married for 24 years. That's their money, not his. That's how marriage works. But you about to lose half of y'all's money, your money and her money. It's not going to be y'all's money. That 900 million that, of course, you want to approach a billion for the ego's sake of it all. I get it. I mean, I don't get it because I ain't got like, you know, 900 million. But in theory, I get the idea of wanting to hit a milestone. Ain't no need for the left beats headphone to be yours and the right beats headphone to be your wife's. We don't need that. 24 years, work that shit out. Move to separate sides of the mansion. Have an open marriage. Try some new shit that y'all ain't tried before. Work that shit out. If it can't be worked out, well then she gotta go, she gotta go, she gotta take half. After 24 years, that's just the way it is and it's rightfully so. 24 years, it's a quarter of a century with the same damn person. She gonna have to take her proper portion when she goes. And she gonna have to take a house or two and some cars. She gotta have a place to live and something to drive. And some stock. Half. If you can work it out, I suggest you work it out because that's a lot of money to lose. Divorce is a bitch. I don't recommend it for anyone. If you can avoid it, do not do it. Reconcile. Work your shit out. People file for divorce and don't get divorced all the damn time. This can be you, sir. Provide that woman with some goddamn peace. So you can keep your peace and y'all's money together. Back to the BET Awards. I'm trying to think what else happened. Amanda was good. I liked her as a host. Oh, the baby. So I liked the performance that he gave with the knee on his neck. I thought it was timely. I thought it was relevant. I thought it was visually provocative. But a lot of other people I talked to were like, oh, my God, that was so offensive. Can you imagine George Floyd's family watching that? We all saw that video. It was traumatizing. Like, that's not something we need to recreate for art, which I was like, yeah, y'all got a point. And then when my other friends was like, Did you listen to what he was rapping about when the knee was on his neck? He's rapping about foolishness. It's not like he's giving you political commentary about the state of black America. He's like, Don't don't praise him for that. Okay, I won't praise him, but I still thought it was like visually stunning. With the big gold chain looking like a like actual chains. And his teeth are beautiful. I mean, I know they're probably caps, but beautiful dental work. I appreciate a good dental job. I really do. I can't remember anything else. Those are the things that left great impressions on me. I'm looking forward to seeing Hamilton. Hamilton comes on Disney Plus tomorrow. If you recall many, many months ago, I went to D.C. so I could go to New York with my mom to go to a bunch of Broadway shows. And one of them was to see Blair Underwood's Abs. And the other one was to see Hamilton. Broadway actually shut down the day we were supposed to go up. We decided not to go the night before because of, you know, COVID and other things in New York were shutting down. So we never got to see Hamilton. I've never seen Hamilton, which is a great regret. But I'm really looking forward to watching Hamilton. Disney Plus also has um, this new Beyonce. I'm going to assume there's an album coming. It's called He is King. There was quote and unquote leaks of a preview Of the, I guess it's another visual album, there were leaks on on social media, which means it was planned to cause buzz, and then it was pulled, and then it ran as a commercial during the BET Awards. Mm, Okay, mark it however you feel. I'm looking forward, as like the rest of the world, to also watching this, um, I think, visual album. I think that's what it is. I'm really not sure. I just saw a bunch of images that looked like Wakanda-esque. And I was like, ooh. I also saw some, some commentary from African women. I don't know what country they were from. But the point they were making was, this is not African. And they were like taking a bunch of different cultures from different countries and putting them into this like hodgepodge melting pot is not what we do with our culture in Africa. This is an African-American representation of African imagery. And she was like, I mean, that is no disrespect. I'm just pointing out that African-Americans generally don't know where they come from in Africa. And so they latch on to a bunch of different cultures, almost like hoping they hit the right one. And they do this hodgepodge, which we would never do. You know, love it and enjoy it. Just understand that this is not African. This is some y'all's ish. And I was like, um, okay. Didn't completely pop the balloon, but deflated the bubble a little bit. Like, damn, sis. I have Terry Crews on my list to talk about. He's saying dumb shit again. Pandering to white folks. He said something about black people criticize him because his wife is half white. Bruh. I've seen pictures of his wife a million times. I never thought she was half white. I mean, she's light-skinned. Yeah. But she just looked like a light-skinned black person. I didn't look at her and be like, oh, her mama must be white. And I was like, I assure you, Terry Crews, that your half-white wife that nobody knew was half-white is not the reason people criticize you. People criticize you because you consistently say dumb shit that makes no sense. And you threw Gabrielle Union under the bus. But it's not because of your wife being half-white. Especially not from his generation. This new thing where black people go out of their way to refer to biracial black people as biracial, that's some new shit, like within the last 10 years. Like when I was growing up, biracial meant black. Like, okay, we can acknowledge your white parent. That's fine, but you black. Just like Obama, like he has a white mom. Like I didn't hear any of that like biracial, like, oh, he's not black. He's biracial. I didn't hear any of that before the Obama years. I don't know where that came from. Like Halle Berry, Halle Berry has a white mom. All while I was coming up, Halle Berry wasn't referred to anything but black. Like, she was never called biracial. I don't know if it's progress or not that folks are starting to acknowledge folks with a black parent and a white parent is biracial. Because they're not accepted by white folks as white. But to, but then to formally not also be accepted by black folks as black, that's fucked up. I mean, even though black folks can sometimes be hard on mixed folks and light-skinned folks. Like, oh, you're not black enough. I mean, they're being assholes. They don't really mean that shit. Like, it really comes down to it. Like, we gonna embrace your black ass. This is the third time I've had a rant about Terry Crews. Like, he's the new Tyrese. Remember Tyrese, like, every other week would just say some stupid shit about black women? I feel like that's where Terry Crews is going. And I'm like, that didn't work out well for Tyrese either. Just FYI. People love Tyrese. Until he got on social media. What did he write? He posted up this tweet about the Black Lives Matter movement. And he said, quote, if you are a child of God, you are my brother and sister. I have family of every race, creed and ideology. We must ensure hashtag Black Lives Matter doesn't morph into hashtag Black Lives Better. Like, I don't I don't even understand like what, what that means, like morph into Black Lives Better. How? How? You start comparing wealth statistics between black households and white households, massive difference. That gap isn't going to be closed with a month and change of protests or even changing some laws today. In order for black lives to actually be better, do you know how many leaps and bounds have to be made? Black education, look at the statistics. Black poverty, look at the statistics. Black mortality, look at the statistics. I always like to point out to people... The hashtag, the movement is Black Lives Matter. It's not Black Lives Equal. It's not Black Lives Thrive. It's like acknowledge that I matter. That's the baseline. The baseline. Angela Rye was on Chris Cuomo last night. She pointed out that in the Constitution, Americans are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Black Lives Matter is just trying to get to life. Just life. That's all we're trying to get to. Can we live? Can police stop gunning folks down? Black folks can't add a stone patio, can't pull out of a parking space, can't sleep in their car, can't sleep in their bed, can't wander down the street, can't wear a hoodie, can't have a licensed gun with documentation. Black folks being slaughtered left and right. And you're like, let's make sure this doesn't morph into black lives better. Do you know how far black folks got to go Just to be equal? Equal? We got light years to get to mattering. The president of the United States is mad about Black Lives Matter potentially being painted in front of Trump Tower in New York. He said it's hate speech. To insist my life matters is hate speech? Really? You want to talk about let's make sure we don't get to Black Lives better. We can't get to Black Lives even mattering, nigga. I hate a motherfucker with a good platform that won't use it for no kind of good. It's one thing to shut the fuck up and not get involved. It's another thing to intentionally, willfully use that shit to say dumb shit and pander to white people. No one's talking about better. Literally, no one is talking about better. One person be so goddamn terrible. I hate that motherfucker. Ugh. I guess we need to talk about essence. Essence. A few past and present employees going under the name Black Women Anonymous released an open letter to Essence Magazine. Let me just read it. Some of it. It's a long letter. Page six covered it. They posted this article on Medium.com. Black Female Anonymous. Not Black Women Anonymous. Black Female Anonymous. But they posted this letter on Medium on Sunday night. They said, we present ourselves under the condition of anonymity for fear of retaliation, intimidation, and maligning of our media careers. They are demanding the resignation of essentially the top four people at Essence, and they're calling on sponsors to divest from Essence until there is new leadership. In short, they're saying that, quote, the Essence brand promise is fraudulent. The once exalted media brand dedicated to black women has been hijacked by cultural and corporate greed and an unhinged abuse of power. They go on to say that, quote, Essence aggressively monetizes black girl magic, but the company does not internally practice black girl magic. The company's longstanding pattern of gross mistreatment and abuse of its black female employees is the biggest open secret in the media business. Hmm, I also read this part. For the black women who make up over 80% of the company's workforce, they are systematically suppressed by pay inequity, sexual harassment, corporate bullying, intimidation, colorism, and classism. And then they go on to get more specific about their charges. So this letter came out on Sunday. Essence promptly responded. They denied all of the allegations. And then on Wednesday... Essence announced that Rich Dennis, he's the CEO of Essence Communications, would be stepping aside. He's going to be replaced, at least temporarily, by a new woman, a black woman. She's going to run operations at Essence, and they are going to engage outside counsel to do an assessment of their workforce. If you notice that I'm just sticking to the facts, of of the open letters and the press releases that is for a good cause. I used to work at Essence for years. I was the relationship editor from 2007 to 2011. I quit in September 2011. Essence was my last real job, but for various reasons, I'm still affiliated with the magazine. I still write for the magazine. I still write for the dot-com My most recent piece was probably two weeks ago. Still friends with many of the staffers. It's a very precarious position. I haven't figured out what to say, if anything, about this. Anonymous has demands that have been put forth. It seems quite quickly, a CEO stepping aside in 72 hours is quite quick in in corporate world. They have put allegations forth. And the people have seemed to side with them. I've seen a lot of maligning of Essence in the last three or four days. Let's see how this plays out. Every person I have worked with at Essence, minus two folks I ain't heard from in years. I'm still friendly with, but just don't talk to on a regular basis. I mean, everybody has reached out in some form or fashion like, girl, we have discussed what is in that first open letter. We have discussed Essence's response, their first response, denying all the accusations. And last night, we discussed the CEO stepping aside. At this time, I don't feel like it's necessary for me to say much more. If at a different time, I feel like I have something to say, well, I have this delightful little podcast. So, next topic. So, August Alcina, Is that how you pronounce his name? I've heard his name in passing. I can't name a single song of his. But that means nothing. August Alcina. Let me look this up. Y'all love to slide in my DMs or my comments and tell me, you mispronounced. It's blah, blah, blah. I'm talking for an hour straight. Occasionally, I will mispronounce things. Some names I butcher and other times, I just don't know how to pronounce the shit. Sometimes I'm gonna get it wrong. I assure you, I will live, and so will you. Did you know what I meant? Great. Then go with that. August Alsina. So August Alsina does this interview with Angela Yee. He is promoting his latest album. It was a long interview. They talked about a range of different subjects. But the subject that everyone is speaking about is August Alsina saying that he had sexual relations with Jada Pinkett Smith, who's like twice his age. Old enough to be his mom. And he did so with Will Smith's permission. Jada and Will have been married for like 20 plus years. Might be 25. We're pushing it. Honestly, I don't give a fuck. I think maybe I'm supposed to. People want me to. I don't care. I just don't. Jada and Will have been rumored to have a unique arrangement of a marriage. They are grown folk consenting adults. August Alsina, he's not that old, but he is grown. He's young, but he's legal. He knows what marriage is. He knew Jada was married to Will. A wife sleeping with somebody else and the husband gave permission. There's no lying. There's no cheating. Everyone's informed about what the scenario is. Like, grown folks consented to do what the fuck they wanted. Like, if you really want me to have an opinion on it, I'm of two minds. One, I'm like, young boy has no discretion. He out here running his goddamn mouth. You knew she was married. You was sleeping with somebody's wife. Now you want to go talk about it? And just to be clear, this is the same stance I take when women do this. I'm like, there was a time when side pieces knew their place. You got burnt in the end. What else did you expect to happen? You thought he was going to leave his wife? I say the same thing to August Alcina. Like, you on here talking to Angela Yee about all your hurt feelings and you gave all of yourself to this relationship. Why would you give all of yourself to someone who can't give all of themselves to you? That's for folks who are dating married people and folks who are dating other single people. If you're engaging with someone, you're giving your all, but they can't give you their all. Why are you doing it? That makes no sense. Reciprocity does matter. Like black lives. I don't know much about him. I wrote about it on my Facebook page and folks were like, well, yeah, he was young, though. Like he was battling addiction. She was supposed to be like a mother figure to him. She shouldn't have taken advantage of that young boy. I mean, I hear you. I also know that if the tables were turned here, y'all wouldn't be finding all this sympathy For a black woman, if there was a woman that came out and she was like, I was having an affair with Will Smith and he broke my heart and I did so with Jada's permission, people would be like, get your dumb ass away from a microphone, which you expect to happen fucking with a married man. Notably, other people are like Jada Pinkett Smith took advantage of him. He didn't say I was battling addiction and she took advantage of me. We suddenly find this deep well of sympathy and understanding and we do these like masterful cartwheel esque mind tricks. To, to avoid holding men accountable for their behavior. Because it's a man saying, I got my feelings hurt. I invested in something. Oh, we're talking about how vulnerable he is. Find that empathy for women. When you find it for women, I'll find it for him. I got my feelings hurt while I was knowingly fucking somebody's wife. What? Get out of here with that shit. I think it's worth noting that Jada and Will have completely denied this. I'd be shocked if they actually talked about it on Red Table Talk. But Jada will say some wild shit for ratings. So maybe they will address it. As I was doing the edit for this podcast, Jada Pinkett Smith hopped on Twitter and actually addressed this issue again. She tweeted, quote, there's some healing that needs to happen. So I'm bringing myself to the Red Table. Let's see what more Madame Smith has to say. About these allegations. So it is time to meet our expert for this week. His name is Alex Ballard. He is a firearms specialist. He runs a company called Civilian Self Defense Concept and Principles. And the reason I wanted to speak with him is because 90% of his clientele is black women who are interested in learning more about firearms and firearm safety. He also has an organization called Armed Black Movement, where his goal is to educate the black community to where self-defense is a part of our culture again. This isn't a new thing. It's a thing that we had and a thing that we lost and a thing that Alex is trying to help us bring back. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome Alex Ballard to Ratchet and Respectable. Hello. Hi, Alex. It's Demetria. Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. I've been following the news. I've been looking at, to be frank, a lot of white people with really big guns. I've never been particularly all that interested in gun ownership. Like, I've been to a gun range. It was a cool experience. But then I, you know, I see all these white people brandishing weapons, and I'm just like, black people really ain't armed like that. Do I need to be? Should I I think about it? So I have been thinking about it. So I was really interested in speaking with you, because you told me that like 90% of your clientele is women. Who are interested in in firearms? Women and who are skeptical about ownership. So that's kind of like my niche. When women come to you and they say that they're skeptical, what are they skeptical about? What are their, um, I guess, reservations about gun ownership?
1: I think safety is like the primary concern because most women that come to me have families. And it's usually a fear that they bring. And the fear is driven by... The fact that they aren't educated about firearms, they're kind of given their perspective from the media where they hear about mass shootings and all these other things that, you know, the, the, the media, you know, uses basically as propaganda to, to drive the fear in folks. So once they are educated, like my first student when I started my business six years ago, she was terrified of firearms. Um, her dad was military and he instilled fear in them in hopes that that would prevent them from touching his firearms so we had that conversation i explained to her you know the tool how it's used how you can remain safe with it and at the end of that conversation i said you know how do you feel she said i feel pretty good i said well if you want to shoot we can head out in a range and shoot if not if, you know it's up to you this this is your time and she was like no i think i want to go shoot and she turned out to be like one of my best students she's like very accurate um, she has a concealed carry permit now. and I also have a significant amount of women who come to me that have had some sort of um, domestic abuse history. Me teaching them and them leaving feeling empowered is
0: like, that's kind of where I get my rush. It is a very powerful feeling. Like the first time you shoot a weapon, it's like, oh, I'm glad that you brought up the idea of guns being wrong. Because even when I went, you know, when I went to the gun range, I did feel like I was doing something wrong. By engaging with a gun,
1: that's part of like the whitewashing of our history. And, and one of my one of my colleagues is actually more like a mentor to me, Sam Hayes. He kind of equates that to the crack epidemic. Prior to the crack epidemic in the eighties, firearms was somewhat part of our culture. If you if you think about like even going back to the civil rights movement, like a lot of those protests and stuff were guarded five brothers with arms, if you're familiar with the Deacons for Defense, that was part of our history. But I think with the violent wave that came with the with the crack epidemic in the 80s, it put a negative spin on firearm ownership um, for, for our people. Not to mention the way the, the media portrays this as well. So yeah, you do have that kind of feeling, like you know, is, is this okay? Is this right? Especially when you talk about ownership. So I, I totally get it. But that's not by mistake. That is definitely intentional for you to be you know, apprehensive about embracing your right to protect yourself. That's that's not by accident.
0: Yeah, because look at the white folks on the news. Like, they have no apprehension. Like, they have tons of them, big ones, too.
1: So that's why I started doing what I do. So when I moved from New Jersey down to Delaware, um, I immediately noticed that it was cultural. And so I became a legal firearm owner. And then when my, my son was born, I started to seriously train and then I started to notice when I would go to the range or I would go to the gun stores, there was no one there that looked like me. Even furthermore, it was almost like people were looking like, What are you doing here? And so to me that bothered me, not in the sense that it made me uncomfortable. It bothered me that we were alienated that much from this culture, considering how important it is, because I believe the second amendment protects all the others because it's 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 the it's the way that you're allowed to legally enforce um, you're right. So I believe the Second Amendment is really important, but we aren't really receptive to it from a culture, and and so I sought out to to change that. So I started a so. What started out as a page on Instagram five six years ago called Armed Black Movement, and my focus was strictly to number one network with people such as myself who embraced their legal um, right to bear arms, and then kind of network and link people up who were in different places. Um, and seek it out, training, and it's kind of grown into an organization.
0: So walk me through the beginning stages. Like, if I have decided I am interested in owning a gun, what is the first thing I do?
1: The first thing you want to do is take a class. And I, I, I use the comparison to driving a vehicle, right? When you get of age, you don't just go out and buy a vehicle. You take drivers in it or some, some sort of education process so that you learn about the rules of the road, learn about the vehicle itself and how it's operated. And that is, I think, the most important step is to understand the importance of the education process. And then part of that process is trying out different firearms. You know, you should, just like a car, you should buy a firearm before you, before you shoot it. It's really important that you vet your instructor um, to find out what their background mm-hmm. is, what their credentials are, what their experiences. You know, also, like, your instructor should be taking classes as well. But a lot of people are out here teaching classes, especially now because it's popular amongst our people, and they don't have credentials.
0: What are kind so, of yeah. questions do I need to ask? Like, I want to make sure that they're NRA certified, and what else should I ask?
1: You know what I always ask instructors? When was the last time you took a class? Mm. If you can afford it, you should be taking three to four classes a year. Training is not a class. Training is a process, right? So you take a class and you are learning a skill from a professional. That's training. And then once you learn that skill, you're going to go home and you're going to practice that skill for a few months. And then you're going to be ready to take your next training class that you're going to now learn the next skill. Maybe pressure test the skills that you learned prior to that and continue to repeat that cycle. So your instructor should also be a student.
0: I think that's uh, so important um, to speak of gun use as a skill, because all I know about guns is literally from, like, I'm from the suburbs, like The Wire and rap music, like Rick Ross right. and and, <laughs> and Omar yeah, yeah. Um, that's or Chris Partlow. When you look at gun use, especially with black folks on TV, you don't see responsible gun use. You see, like, right, that right. shoot sideways thing, which I guess looks right. cool, but it's completely ineffective when you're trying to actually, like, hit something. right. And never
1: let anyone just recommend a firearm to you. You can have someone say, hey, go to the range and shoot this and see how you like it, or shoot this and shoot that. But you have to try it out for yourself because everyone everyone has a different preference for how something feels in their hand. They have a different hand size. They're going to have a different intended use for the firearm. Some folks are going to carry carry concealed. Some folks are just going to want to use it for home defense. Um, But you want to start with education, um, like a basic pistol class. So a basic pistol class, such as like the NRA basic pistol class, which is you know what I teach, is going to take you from, I've never even seen or touched a pistol before, to learning how to shoot it effectively. It talks about the safety aspects. It breaks the firearm down in terms of the different parts, how they function, how to use the firearm, how to load, unload it, and make it safe. It's going to talk about storage, transportation of the firearm, purchasing the firearm, talk about securing the firearm in the home. I say that because a lot of people usually start that conversation off with children.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And my perspective is that whether they are a child or an adult, if someone isn't properly trained, they shouldn't have access to your firearm. I think a lot of spouses make that mistake, you know, where the husband or the wife will buy a gun. And because, you know, they live with another adult that they think should be involved with helping to protect the family, which they should, but they go ahead and give them access to that firearm. Which is, which is a liability, because if you're not properly trained, you are a liability putting that tool in your hand. And the basic pistol class is a great class. I've had people bring their families to that class. I'm talking about 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Even, even if you're not intending on having your young child to shoot, they have to be educated on the safety aspects of I it. Mean, I have an 8-year-old son, and he's been shooting for almost two years now. But before I let him touch a firearm, like I made sure he was very respectful of the tool and the safety aspects that come along with handling it before I even
0: put one in his hands. Alex, Alex, I'm gonna stop yep. you and run you back real quick. You had okay. your you had your baby shooting at six. Yeah. Okay, Alex, talk to me about that. Like, how did, how did this decision come to you? I think my situation is unique because
1: I do have people reach out to me and say, you know, my son is 11 years old. What's the right age? Every child is different. I could tell you my five-year-old daughter probably won't touch a gun to another 10 years because she does not follow directions. (laughs) My son, my son was unique. I can give my son three specific sets of directions and he'll follow them to the T. I can tell my daughter, hey, go put this cup in the sink for me. She'll go put it on the stove. I'll ask you to put it in the sink. She said, oh, I thought you said just put it in the kitchen. So they're completely different, but each child is different, so you have to know your child. So I was comfortable with him following directions and him respecting the tool. Secondly, me being an instructor, um, I kind of eased him into the process, and I chose one of the safest options for him to shoot a firearm, which is a both-action um single shot rifle which is a rifle that you put one round into the chamber you have to manually load it and that's that's, that's it you can't put more than one round so which means if you press the trigger the gun is useless after that she's got a little one shooter we go to the range he shoots that and he's pretty happy like your child especially our kids depending on where you grow up especially they're going to encounter firearms i can't count the number of times where I was in a friend's home as a kid and it's like hey you want to see this my dad got this in the cards you want to see this so they're going to have some sort of interaction with the firearms sooner or later hopefully it's in a safe manner so you want to educate them on safety even if you're not going to have them shoot it but my son you know he, he really took to it he was interested in it which is what drove me to that because he, him being around him since he was a baby basically like I cut my son's umbilical cord <laughs> concealed carry Um, you can just always ask about, um, and so I just said, you know, this is, this is something I'm just going to educate him about.
0: I mean, it's not the first time I've heard it. I have a friend, actually a few friends, um, who are from the South, a little bit country, and they'll say things like, yeah, I was shooting with my dad, like when I was seven, eight, and be like, what?
1: And it's all perspective, because, like, a, a firearm has many different purposes, but, The main purpose that I engage with firearms is because I believe it's a tool for survival. So my son was six months. We had him in swim classes (laughs) because, you know, he's going to encounter water quite frequently. It's a survival skill to be able to swim. And I feel the same way about firearms. I think it's a tool. And I think that, you know, you have to learn to use certain tools, especially this one, considering what we deal with.
0: So run me back to the process. I take this class. I learn about firearms. I decide that there's one or two that I specifically like. Then, what do I do? How, where do I even go to purchase a gun?
1: It depends on where you live. So, in the state of Delaware, I can go to a gun store and come home with my gun. You being, in, I believe you said you're in, you're in California, right? Yes.
0: In mm-hmm.
1: You you go through a process, and then once
0: you get approved for that
1: process, you have a ten
0: day wait to apply for a gun. I assume there's like a government website for this.
1: No, there's no government website for guns. gun. If you want to purchase a gun in, in, in California, you have to go through what's called the DROS process, which is the dealer record of sales. You will go to your state's website for the requirements, whether it's purchasing or concealed carry or even just like the use of force laws. You want to get them from your state government's websites. That's critical. Once you find out what the requirements are, if you live in a state such as California or New Jersey, for example, in New Jersey you have to get a permit just to purchase a firearm. Every firearm, every pistol that you want to purchase, you have a you have to get a permit for that pistol and then make the purchase. Most states aren't like that. Most states you can just go into a gun store and purchase the gun and you can even purchase online. So when you purchase a gun, you fill out a form, and it's a form that they use to run a background check. So once you fill out that form, there's a number that the person in the store who's an FFL, Federal Firearms License Dealer, they call this number, give your information, and the person on the uh, on the line basically gives them a response, yes or no. And that's the same process you will follow if you were purchasing it online with the exception of the gun isn't shipped to you. It's shipped to an FFL dealer that you select. You'll get notification when it's there. Then you'll go and follow the same process as if you were just purchasing it in-store.
0: How much does a gun cost?
1: It depends. You know, you can pay anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to a pistol to a few thousand. Um, your basic, your average cost for a, a reliable self-defense pistol is about 350 to, to $500. Hmm. Guns are like cars. You know, you can buy a Honda Civic. It's going to be reliable. It's going to get you to work every day. Or you can go buy a Porsche. And do the same thing in terms of getting you to work, but you're going to pay a lot more for features, for reputation, and the name. So it's, it's, it's pretty much the same concept.
0: And once I get this gun, I think it's important or just responsible to talk about storage. What's the basics for keeping a gun safe? You want to have it in a
1: safe, and there's a couple of different approaches to that. So I'll tell you about how I have my gun stored. So I have a main safe, which is an upright safe where I have my long guns and pistols that I'm not currently using in that safe. And that has, you know, the typical bars that goes through the door with the combination on it. It's about 15 to 20 guns. In addition to that, I have two quick access safes in my house, which are small boxes about the size of my one that I have mounted to my headboard. is about the size of a 13-inch um, laptop where I can fit a pistol and a couple of magazines in there.
0: You have it mounted it says, to the headboard of your bed?
1: I have it mounted to the headboard of my bed.
0: I'll this talk
1: about, about that in a second. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. And then I have another quick access safe in the drawer of my kitchen. And that is where my concealed carry pistol goes when I'm up and about during the day. And both of these safes are accessed the same way where there's a key code that you punch in and the safe pops open. Quick access safes are important because when you're using a firearm for self-defense in your home, you have to balance safety and, and, and accessibility. So you have to make sure that no one that should not have it can get to it. But you also need to make sure that when you need it, you can get to it. So if I had all my guns stored in my traditional upright safe, it takes about 10 seconds easy to put the combination in. That time is critical, especially when you're talking about getting up in the middle of the body, being partially
0: coherent, and then there being darkness. My quick access safe on my bed or my hand gets near the keypad lights up. To me, it sounds a little crazy, but it also sounds quite responsible. (laughs) When you said mount it to the headboard, that's why I was like, wait, brother, wait. You watch movies and people sleep with a gun on the dresser, or they do like, um, what's Dominique in Harlem Night? She had that teeny tiny oh, under pistol the under the pillow. Right.
1: I'm against having a gun out next to you while you're asleep. Here's why. Me having to punch in that keypad and get that, that, that on my quick access safe. By the time I've done that, I'm coherent completely. Me having a gun next to my bed. I could wake up from a dream. I could think I hear or see something that I don't, and I grab that gun. Like that could be that could be problematic. So, me personally, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that you should have a barrier between you waking up out of your sleep and just putting your hand on a gun. And for me, that barrier is my quick access seat.
0: Those are my questions for you. I feel more informed. Like if I want to go and purchase a gun or, or learn about guns, I feel like I have like the beginning steps of a process. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about women and guns that you think it's important for me to bring up in this conversation?
1: Don't let anyone try to put a tiny gun in your hand. Don't let them tell you that you're a for you. If you can operate a smartphone, you can use a semi-automatic pistol. A semi-automatic pistol means that every round that you're going to discharge from that firearm, you have to press the trigger. So when you hear the news start using terms as automatic weapon, they're lying to you. Civilians cannot have automatic weapons. What happens is when women go to stores, guys try to sell them teeny guns. If you think about what a cartridge is or a bullet, right? A bullet is the projectile, but the entire component is a cartridge. When you shoot that gun, there's an explosion that happens, and so with that explosion, there's energy. So with a tiny gun, there's a couple things that don't work in your favor. The fact that tiny guns have short barrels, which means that energy is going to enter the atmosphere a lot quicker than a longer barrel because there's no travel distance. And so it's going to be more significant. And the recoil, or what you hear people saying, streak the kickback, is going to be more significant. So that's one.
0: What, the tiny gun? It's more significant than a big gun? Absolutely. The big gun that has a bigger, heavier
1: slide is going to help to balance that recoil because there's weight that comes with the bigger gun. In addition to the fact that a tiny gun is going to be small, which means you're going to to have less room to grip the gun with your hands. The more room you have to grip the gun with your hands, the more control you're going to have over that gun. So the size and the weight of the gun is going to help you balance out the recoil, and it's going to shoot a lot smoother than a tiny gun. Tiny guns are very snappy, is is the term that you use. So go to a gun store. They're going to try to sell you a tiny, cute gun. Tell them you're not interested you're not concealed carrying, you should get the biggest gun that you can shoot efficiently. So you want to get a full-size, what they call full-size or service pistol. Don't let anyone
0: sell you tiny guns, ladies. Amazing tip for the ladies. Alex, thank you so much. Like, you really, like, learned me something today. You're welcome. You're welcome. And if there's anything that I could do,
1: I'm here. My specific focus is to educate the Black community to the point
0: to where self-defense is part of our culture again. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Have an awesome day. You too. Bye bye. Y'all, I swear I probably need to do this on video. When he said he had his eight-year-old shooting, I was like, "I'm sorry, what?" I almost used the word I'm not supposed to use, and it doesn't apply to him. It's just you know my default. Sometimes I could just be real ignorant, but I was like, "Sir, <laughs> got your eight-year-old? You heard it in my voice." I was like, "What you talk about, Willis?" <laughs> So that is the podcast episode for this week. I will definitely be back next week. Next Thursday is my birthday. We'll talk then. Yeah. If you enjoyed what you heard this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Thank you. And if you need some ratchet and respectable in your life during the week, please Follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas. That's on Twitter. That's on Instagram. That's on Facebook. So until we speak again, bye.